Well, this morning we begin a new series in the book of Ruth. So, would you please turn in your Bibles to that book? You say, where is it? Well, Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible. Then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. It's a short book. You could miss it. Only four chapters. So it'll only take us about the next five weeks or so. That's pretty good. I'm moving pretty fast, I think. To look together at this timeless story of God's gracious acts of redemption in the lives of his people. God is a redeemer. He redeems our circumstances, our trials, our tragedies, and yes, our souls. I've titled this series, The Gospel of God's Redemption. The Gospel of God's Redemption. As you know, the word gospel means good news. And if you just read the first chapter of this book, you'd be hard-pressed to find much good news at all. It starts out pretty dark. Furthermore, we'll find very little in this first chapter that we, would lead us to think that there was any hint of redemption in this story at all. So, not much good news, very little redemption. And as, as if that weren't enough, in reading the story, there's very little mention of God at all. So how can this be a story about the good news of God's redemption? Well, as we're going to see, as the story progresses, it becomes clear that God is indeed at work and that that is indeed good news and that he is indeed bringing about redemption for his people. Redeeming their circumstances, redeeming their trials, redeeming their losses, And redeeming their souls. The story of Ruth is a story of God's redeeming care for ordinary suffering people. And that sounds like us. It is the story of God's redeeming our suffering and turning it into eternal good. It is the story of God's plan as well, to bring a Redeemer who would save His people from their sins. It is the story that reminds us of the words of that great old hymn by William Cooper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Let me just read a few of those verses. Speaking of God's providence in all the circumstances of our lives, even in our losses, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In many senses, that is the story of the book of Ruth. That behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. It takes faith to believe that. And we're going to see one of our main characters, Naomi, even this morning, struggle to believe in God's smiling face as she experiences God's frowning providences in her life. And if you can't relate to Naomi in that, then you haven't been through much in this life yet. It's just four chapters long. The little book of Ruth has been called The Perfect Short Story. It seems to have all the elements of a great story, strong bonds of family and friendship, a series of tragic losses, threats to relationship, foreshadowing, plot twists, recurring themes, and even a happy ending. But it is far more than just a good story. It is divine truth. Its words are inspired by God, and it is intended to teach us about who our God is. The book of Ruth teaches us the good news that God is a gracious God who is committed to sovereignly redeeming our lives from the devastating results of sin. Now, we're not going to have an outline this morning. But that is the main point I want you to walk away with this morning. I'm going to say it again. You ready? The book of Ruth teaches us the good news that God is a gracious God who is committed to sovereignly redeeming our lives from the devastating results of sin. That's so important. I'm going to say it one more time. The book of Ruth teaches us the good news that God is a gracious God who is committed to sovereignly redeeming our lives from the devastating results of sin. So, let's look at this story of good news, of God's plan to redeem. Ruth chapter 1. Let me read it for us. I'll read the whole chapter, so you follow along. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Iphethites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may, that may be your husband's? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have eternal truths for us to learn today. And in this study of the book of Ruth, truths that apply directly to our lives right now. Teach us these lessons, Lord. Grow us in our faith in you and in your providence and in your goodness and in your redemptive purposes for our life. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe you. Help us to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, the story of Ruth plays out during the time of the judges. It was a time of chaotic unrest and war. It was a time of great sin and depravity within the land of Israel. A time when seemingly everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, which of course is the repeated refrain of the book of Judges. In fact, you're in Ruth. If you look across the page, probably, or maybe you in your Bible have to turn one page, if you look at the last sentence of the book of Judges, right to your left there, the last verse, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the timing of the book of Ruth. It's a time of darkness. It's a time of moral relativism. And that sad state of moral relativism sounds very much like the very times we're living in now. For we too live in a time when it seems that everyone is doing what seems right in their own eyes. So the time period of the judges and of the book of Ruth in Israel's history comes after the conquest of the promised land by Joshua, but before Saul became the first king. So it roughly covers the time of years between 1380 and 1045 B.C. It was a period of time that was quite dark. Israel was, by and large, forsaking the law of God, and they were a law unto themselves. It was a time of lawlessness and chaos. As a result of Israel's disobedience, God would punish them in, through a series of punishments. Sometimes this punishment would come by way of oppression from an enemy. Sometimes it was through drought and famine. And sometimes it was through drought and famine caused by oppression from an enemy. I want to show you an example of that. Look with me back at Judges chapter 6. This is the kind of thing that was happening cyclically within the time period of the Judges. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So you have Israelites fleeing from the Midianites. And so they're hiding out and they're going to places where they can be safe. Verse 3, For it was when Israel had sown their fields that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number 
Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now this is just the kind of dark and bleak circumstances in which the story of Ruth is set. And one author said that the book of Ruth is a pearl in the pig pen of the judges. That's a good way to say it. That was J. Vernon McGee. Our text says again in verse 1, back to Ruth chapter 1. It begins by telling us that there was a famine in the land. Though we can't be certain of the exact date, it's during one of these times of great famine and national distress that this story of the book of Ruth is set. Now in the last half of verse 1, we are introduced to some of the people of this story. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, there's a touch of irony already in this story. Bethlehem, the place where this family is from, is literally the house of bread. Well, in the house of bread, the cupboards are bare. In Bethlehem, there is a famine. Bethlehem is located about six miles south of Jerusalem. And of course, we know that later on in history, Bethlehem was the hometown of King David and the birthplace of Jesus. Both King David and Jesus, as we'll see as the story unfolds, become prominent part of the enduring story of the book of Ruth. Notice that this family went to sojourn in the land of Moab. The term sojourn indicates that this journey to Moab was not intended to be a permanent one, a permanent situation. They were only sojourning. They were intending to be temporary residents who left Bethlehem in search of food and to escape a famine. Now, verse 2 tells us that the name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. Eli Melech. The name of the woman was Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. Nice names. As we'll see, the meaning of her name is important to the story, even here in chapter 1. The names of their two sons were Malon, which means something like sickly, and Kilion, which may mean something like pining or even something as dark as annihilation. We're also told that they were Ephrathites, which means that they were a prominent, highly respected family from Bethlehem. Because of the famine, the family entered the land of Moab and remained there. Moab was located just east of the Dead Sea. Though it was only about 50 miles away, it often experienced very different weather conditions than much of Israel. The winter rains would fall on Moab even as Israel would experience drought. These winter rains were driven inland from the offshore winds of the Mediterranean Sea and they would fall on the higher plateau that was Moab. 
So while Israel may have been experiencing a famine, the conditions in Moab were likely quite different and the food was in abundance. So having set the scene in verses 1 and 2, the narrator immediately introduces us to some tension within the family and in the story by informing us of some very sad news. Elimelech dies. Verse 3. We don't know how, we don't know why, but he's dead. And it immediately grips our attention. And Naomi is left in a foreign land with just her two sons, sickly and annihilation. (laughs) There is some foreshadowing going on here. As great as the loss of her husband was, at least she has her two sons to help her survive in this foreign land. In verse 4, we learn that Naomi's two sons married Moabite women. Now the Moabites, along with the Ammonites, were the descendants of the incestuous union between Lot and his daughters back in Genesis 19. And we looked at that when we studied Genesis together. So in a sense, these are distant cousins that these two Israeli boys have married. Now unlike intermarriage with the Canaanites... The practice of intermarriage between Israelites and Moabites was not strictly forbidden, but it was highly regulated and therefore somewhat discouraged. The offspring from an Israeli Moabite couple could not enter the congregation for worship for 10 generations according to Deuteronomy 23.3. So there were limits to how much a part of the life and worship of Israel that you could be through an intermarriage like this, though it was not strictly forbidden. So despite Naomi losing her husband, she is perhaps comforted in the knowledge that her sons have wives and will likely produce grandchildren for her soon and preserve the family name. The names of these two Moabite women were Orpah and Ruth. Orpah, not Oprah. That is actually Oprah's legal name at birth, Orpah. But people kept mispronouncing it, so she just changed it to Oprah. Orpah means either neck or stubborn. May have referred either to her striking beauty or perhaps to her unrelenting obstinance. We don't know for sure. Ruth's name means friendship, a name that she dramatically lives up to in our story. We're next told that they lived there in Moab for about 10 years. It's a long time, a decade. In verse 5, however, tragedy strikes again. Malon and Kilion die. Again, we're not told why or how they died, the circumstances of their death. All we're told is that they're dead. And so now, Naomi is left without her husband, without her two beloved sons, no blood relations. And that is the stage that is set for the rest of this book. 
Naomi is devastated. Her future has been obliterated. Her blood relatives are dead. Her hopes for a future for her family line, which was huge in that culture, are over. And she knows it. The stage has been set. What will happen to Naomi and her two daughters-in-law? What will they do? How will they survive? Is there hope for them? Verse 6 tells us that about this time, word reached Naomi that the situation back in Bethlehem has dramatically improved. The Lord, Yahweh, that covenant name of God, has visited his people once again and is giving them food. The famine has ended, and so Naomi decides it's time to go home. Albeit empty-handed. But home, she knows, would not be the same. She'll be returning home without her beloved husband and without her two sons. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. Verse 7. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law begin to make their way toward the border of Israel and Moab. And now at some point along the way, no doubt Naomi rehearsing this in her mind, she speaks to her daughters-in-law. In verse 8, she tells each of them to return to their homes, each of you to her mother's House, go back home. There is no future for you here with me, and there is no future for you in Israel. What are two Moabite girls going to do in the land of Israel? Go back home. In those days, three widowed women, all living together, would struggle to make it. It would be better for Orpah and Ruth to return to their homes and find husbands, find some nice Moabite men to marry and be part of a new family. For with Naomi, there would be no prospects for finding them a husband. No one wanted a Moabite woman in the land of Israel. So Naomi prays for them. She prays for them. She says, may God deal kindly with you. May Yahweh, still calling on Yahweh as the covenant name for God. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You've been kind and wonderful daughters-in-law. And may the Lord reward you for that and give you rest from these troubles by giving you husbands, verse 9. And she kissed him, and they all wept together and cried aloud. What a scene. What a moment. They've come to this place where they will part from one another. And Naomi is convinced of it. She expresses her love. She she prays over them a, a prayer of blessing for their futures and expects that she will see them no more. And they cry together.
Naomi is concerned. It's time to say goodbye to these girls that she loves so much, once and for all. She would return to Bethlehem alone and try to eke out an existence as a widow with no sons to support her. So, Orpah and Naomi respond to this with objections. Verse 10. No, but we will surely return with you to your people. We want to go with you. Apparently, Orpah and Naomi, Orpah rather, and Ruth have attached themselves to Naomi and to her family and to her customs and to her God. So Naomi really tries hard to dissuade them from going with her. Verses 11 through 13. Go home, my daughters. Why come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that you could marry? Is that possible? You see, it was the custom of the day to practice leveret marriage. And we're going to see more of that unfold in the book of Ruth. If a wife's husband died before they were able to have children, then the deceased husband's brother or other close relative was obligated to step up and take his brother's widow as his own wife. And that's outlined in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. But the problem is, Naomi knows she has no other sons. There's no other sons to step up. And there's no prospect of other sons. In fact, Naomi says, look, I've got no more sons to offer you. I'm so old, I can't even get a new husband. But even if I were to get a new husband and married again, even this very night, and I were to somehow, despite my years, become pregnant and bear sons, are you going to wait around 18 to 20 years for them to come of, of age and be old enough to marry? No, of course not. This is absurd. This is a dead end for you, ladies. So would you really choose to go with me and therefore be choosing, in essence, not to get married and not to have children? No, of course not. Go home. Your situation in life is far better than mine. My situation is harder. Literally, she says, my situation is more bitter. It's more bitter for me than for you, for there is still hope for you to get remarried. But as for me, my situation is far worse, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And the text says that they all lifted up their voices and wept again. Such a heartbreaking scene. Notice that from Naomi's perspective, this has all happened because Yahweh's hand was heavy against her. The hand of God symbolized the irresistible, sovereign power of God to either bless or curse. And Naomi sees it as cursing. For the hand of God has gone out against me. She sees God as her enemy. And that he has gone to war against Naomi. 
The Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi is interpreting the events of her life and concluding that God must be against her. Ever been there? Ever wondered that? It's easy to reach this conclusion when life is hard, when life doesn't go as planned. But as the rest of the story teaches us, God's hand was not against Naomi. God was not against her. Instead, God was, in his infinite wisdom, using the circumstances and events of Naomi's life to show his mercy and grace and redemption. The book of Ruth reminds us that God is always sovereignly bringing about his work of redemption in our lives. Redeeming our losses and turning them into gains. Redeeming tragedies and making them triumphs of his grace. Redeeming our grief and causing it to give way to joy. Redeeming hopelessness and renewing in us hope in his plan and his purposes. And of course, God is ultimately committed to redeeming our lost souls from destruction and delivering us from death and God's judgment and giving us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. That is why he sent his son Jesus to redeem us from our sins. Jesus, who himself is a direct descendant from Ruth. So there they are on the road, and they cry one last time together. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and returned home. But as for Ruth, it says she continued to cling to Naomi. So Naomi says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has good sense. She's decided to go home. You should do the same thing. Go on, return to your people and return to your gods. Go on and return with your sister-in-law. Now look down to verse 19. Naomi returns to Bethlehem. And it creates quite a stir. Of course, Ruth is with her. And we'll look at Ruth's response in just a moment. Naomi returns to Bethlehem. They both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Is, this Na- is that her? It's been 10 years. She is not looking good. <laughs> Those 10 years have not been kind to her. No, they hadn't. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She believes she's basically in the world alone with no one by her side except a widowed Moabite girl. 
And Naomi responds to this, to this whispering of the women, somewhat severely. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Remember, her name meant pleasant. No, I got a new name now. Call me Mara. Call me Mara Bitter. And notice the reason for her desired name change. Because the Almighty Shaddai, El Shaddai, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, Irresistible One, has dealt very bitterly with me. My life has not lived up to my name. So change my name. Call me Mara. Bitter. Naomi's struggling. Struggling to deal with the realities of life in a world marred by sin and death and loss and grief. I want us to conclude today by looking at Ruth's response in verses 16 and 17. When Naomi says, go home, you know, you, you'll do much better going home than staying with me. Your future lies somewhere else, not at my side. But look at Ruth's response, verses 16 and 17. And Ruth demonstrates here a remarkable and exemplary loyalty and faithfulness both to her mother-in-law and more importantly, to the one true God, Yahweh. Notice what she says. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Don't dissuade me. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you go, I will go. I'm going to follow you, Naomi. I'm hitching my wagon to to you. Where you go, I'm going. Where you lead, I will follow. Furthermore, she says, where you lodge, I will lodge. I'm going to live with you. I'm not just looking for a a point of entry into a new country and going to leave you. No. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be by your side. Whatever happens, whatever comes, know that we'll go through it together. Your people shall be my people. I'm going to identify with you and with your people. Ruth understood, apparently, that the Israelites were the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the recipients of God's covenant blessings. And Ruth understands here that her greatest blessing would come from staying near Naomi and not in returning to her homeland and to her false gods. Her greatest blessing would be to live among the people of God in Israel. And she caps it all off with this. Your God will be my God. I'm going to worship with you, Naomi. Your God. The one true God, Yahweh. You see, the people of Moab worshipped Chemosh, a false god who required child sacrifice. Ruth knew that 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 was not a future. 
That was not hope. That was darkness. That was evil. She would follow Naomi as Naomi followed her God, Yahweh. She says, where you die, I will die. I'm going to do this until the day I die. I will die in the same country in which you die. And then she, she seals it with a vow. She says, the, thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. This speaks to the seriousness of Ruth's commitment to Naomi and to Naomi's God. She's making a vow before the Lord with the Lord as a witness and with her own life as the guarantee. Ruth rightly understood that her spiritual blessing was tied to God's gracious, redemptive covenant with his people. And that Yahweh is the one true God. She knew that the path of greatest blessing for her life would come as a result of making Naomi's God her God for life. And so she abandoned all other hopes, forsook her homeland, burned her boats, as it were, and turned her back on all of her former pagan beliefs. That is a beautiful picture of repentance. It was a moment of decision And for Ruth, there would be no turning back. It's the kind of decision and commitment that in a previous generation, Joshua called Israel to as they began to settle in the promised land. Joshua 24, 14. Joshua says, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is the same decision and commitment that Peter arrived at in John chapter 6. In verses 66 through 69, as a result of Jesus' teaching, many of Jesus' disciples were no longer following him. He was saying some hard things, some things that didn't make sense to them. And and they began to drop off. Though they had been following Jesus for some time, many of Jesus' disciples were no longer walking with him. So Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the same situation as Ruth discovered. Where else would I go, Naomi? Your God has the answers. Your God has the hope. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. The book of Ruth teaches us that God is a gracious God who's committed to sovereignly redeeming our lives from the devastating results of sin. Ruth knew this 
and believed it and decided to forsake all else in pursuit of the one true God and among his people. And that is the decision that remains for all of us. Will we believe that God is a gracious God who is committed to sovereignly redeeming our lives from the devastating results of sin? Will we believe that God once and for all has proven his goodness and his graciousness and his redemptive purposes by sending his son Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin and our guilt? May our response be as faith-filled and resolute as both Ruth's and Peter's and Joshua's. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great redemptive act on our behalf. The greatest of all redemptive acts. Turning our sorrow into joy, our guilt into forgiveness, our death into life. We celebrate your table and the gospel to which it points. We thank you for your faithfulness, perfect faithfulness. Our faithfulness will always be imperfect. It will always have fits and starts. It will always be marred by unbelief and failure. But your faithfulness is perfect. And because you are perfectly righteous, we have hope of righteousness through faith in you and your finished work. We thank you for the bread and the cup that point us to your body and blood. Your body ravaged by the hands of evil men. Your blood spilled on our behalf as you who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in you. What a glorious gospel of redemption. What good news. Be honored as we celebrate it together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.